take a deep breath and remember there's a power breathing you. This is your space of sanity in an evolving world where we learn about spiritual law and how to apply it to our lives in a way that is practical and life-changing. This is where we remember truth to make the world a better place one person at a time. I'm Claire Lotier, inspirational speaker, teacher of the technology of transformation, and a certified life mastery consultant and spiritual coach. Welcome to the Grace Space. In this series, Living with Grace and Ease, we've been looking at five simple shifts that you can make that eliminate stress in daily life. Oh, come on, really? I can understand why you might think those are big claims to make. You can't eliminate stress, can you? It's just a fact of life. There's always going to be stress. Well, the whole point of this series is to introduce you to a shift in perception about stress and the emotions that go with it. Fear, anxiety, worry, doubt, shame, guilt, anger, and so on. Stress, the way I think of it, is a byproduct of our fallen state, our state of separation from our source, our belief in separation from our source. If we completely and totally trusted the spirit of life, if we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're loved, provided for, that we're in fact eternal, that everything is okay, would we really stress about the things we stress about? Would we be lost in identification with the small, mind-made self of the ego when we know that in truth, everything is ours already by birthright? Would we really experience stress if we knew deep in our bones that that was the truth? It is the shift in paradigm from identification with the ego and all the unconscious guilt that goes with it to identification with our true self, that's what eliminates stress. And the five shifts that we're looking at in this series help us enlarge our perception of ourselves so that we can begin to trust that there is far more to us than meets the eye. These are shifts that, when implemented in your daily life, are so powerful that they begin to move you back into alignment with what I call your destiny stream. That is, back into alignment with the natural laws that govern this whole universe. When we come into harmony with these natural spiritual laws, life gets easier. And we experience higher levels of inner peace, prosperity, and the joy that arises from within that is not associated with any outer circumstance or the presence or absence of anything or anyone in particular. In fact, any single one of these shifts, if implemented consistently, would be enough to set you on a new and higher course in your life. There's a principle of iteration that says if you can make one tiny shift in degree at the beginning of a journey, let's say that you set out on a long journey by ship and you literally set your course 
mathematically navigating by degrees, if you were to change that course by only one degree right at the beginning, it would make such a huge difference over the course of your journey that you would end up in a vastly different place from where you originally set out for. Well, this is how it works with changes in the course of our life too. One shift in perception towards truth, if applied across the board and without exception, can make an incalculable difference over the long term and yield results of a much higher nature and vibration, a more beautiful, harmonious, easeful, and graceful life is the result. I like to differentiate between fate and destiny. We have a choice between whether we will live according to fate or make the leap to our destiny. Fate is the default timeline that you follow if you don't embrace invitations to grow to a higher level of consciousness because you don't know about it. It's fatalism, the belief that you are doomed or limited to a certain kind of life. You can hear this belief reflected in the way people talk about things like health, such as, there's a history of such and such disease in my family, so I guess I'll get it too. Now that's just a belief because we know now that genes can be turned on and off and express for better or for worse according to the internal environment of thoughts and feelings. So if you believe that you are fated to be stricken with a certain disease or condition because there's a history of it in your family, your belief will influence the genetic expression of that tendency accordingly. That's how powerful your belief is. We see this with the placebo effect too, which makes it quite clear that belief in the remedy or lack of belief in it always trumps the remedy itself. Another example of defaulting to fate is when someone unquestioningly goes into the family business, for example, because that's what we've always done in our family. And there's no real examining of the spirit to feel whether that is what the spirit wants. No other choice is really entertained because the person does not see outside the box of their upbringing and family culture. So the path of fate is the unconscious defaulting to our programming. And you can see that it's closely linked to the genetic and ancestral inheritance. To break with that feels unconsciously like a betrayal of our family or our ancestors, even if it means limitation, unhappiness, and disease. And we accept it because in most cases, we haven't yet understood that we are programmed, that in fact, we are not free. So if that's fate, what's destiny? Destiny is a higher timeline, the expression of higher potentials that are already within us, but that need to be activated by our conscious decision to go outside our comfort zone. I don't know if you've seen that Ryan Reynolds movie, Free Guy, but it's a great parable that illustrates the leap from fate to destiny. It's about a character in a video game, a non-player character. Now, listen, I haven't played a video game since Ms. Pac-Man in about 1984, so don't expect a sophisticated understanding of video games here. But in video games, apparently, there are players, that's you when you play, you choose a character avatar, and you can make choices in the game as this character because you are a player. 
You have possibilities. You can do things and make things happen. You can um, score points or get experience. Then there are the non-player characters who don't have free will. They don't have any possibilities other than what they've been programmed to do in the game to facilitate the world of the game for the players. So they're not inhabited by a player. They're just computer generated. They're like background performers who are just there to give a flavor of the world in a movie, but they aren't part of the main action or story. Well, in this movie, Ryan Reynolds plays a non-player character in a video game. He gets up every day and does the same thing, makes the same choices over and over, and facilitates the world of the game for the real players who live exciting lives and swoop in with fancy cars and sexy babes on their arms, pull off bank heists, and wreak general havoc getting stuff, mostly money and guns and toys of various kinds. Well, one day on the usual track of his character's life, he sees a woman, a player in the game, and falls in love. How could he fall in love if he was a non-player character? Well, it turns out that he was programmed by the game's original programmers, who are also characters in the movie, by the way, with AI, artificial intelligence, such that if a certain code was triggered in his programming, he could potentially evolve. And the code has to do with love. Upon seeing the woman in the game, who is actually his original programmer playing the game in a character skin, his code is triggered. It's as if he recognizes his maker inside this character and his heart is activated. And suddenly he makes a choice to step out of his programming to follow her. I'm getting chills as I remember this because I'm just now making the connection that he falls in love with his creator and will do anything to find her again. And actually, when we first meet the world of the video game, which is a world of corruption and violence and mayhem, we learn that the code and the AI engine it contains, which is what makes it so lifelike, was stolen from the original creators by an unscrupulous, cynical, luciferic dude who only cares about power and money and is willing to sacrifice all the characters in the game and basically kill them to get what he wants. Wow. Metaphor upon metaphor. Anyway, I digress. I'm just realizing how profound this movie actually is. So our guy, whose name is Guy, by the way, wakes up. And in his obsession to find this woman again, at one moment, he interrupts the usual bank heist that takes place every day at the bank where he works as a non-player character. And he swipes the sunglasses off the player character in that scene. See, there's that's the difference between the non-player characters and the players. The players all have these cool sunglasses. And when he puts the glasses on, suddenly he sees differently. He sees everything differently. Suddenly, he can see all the screen displays that the players can see. And this is all new to him. He's never seen anything like it before. Suddenly, he has access to a whole new set of information. A whole new world of possibilities opens up to him, and he realizes that it was there all along. He just couldn't see it. 
Well, without telling you the whole plot of the movie, which I recommend you check out because it's a lot of fun, even if, like me, you don't know anything about video games. Our guy Guy then learns how to navigate this new world and becomes an anomaly in the game by racking up experience points, XPs, by being the good guy in this corrupt world. As he gains experience points, he becomes more and more prosperous and powerful. And all his friends from before who are non-player characters think he's lost his mind because they're either too unaware or too afraid to do anything other than what they've been programmed to do. Meanwhile, Guy is trying to help them see that there is another way of seeing, that they can shift their perception. He's imploring them to wake up and empower themselves, but most of them are unable or unwilling to listen. I won't tell you any more so as not to spoil how things turn out, but you see, it's called Free Guy because the guy who's just a bland, vanilla, non-player character frees himself and chooses to align with destiny by learning the rules of the game. And at one point he realizes that he's in a game, which he didn't know before, and all for the sake of love. He makes the leap from fate to destiny by the power of his love for his creator and becomes more and more empowered by helping others to free themselves. <laughs> it's a beautiful story, I gotta say. So fate is karma. Destiny is dharma. Fate is the ego. Destiny is God. We can choose whom we serve whether to default to our programming or to free ourselves from it. That choice becomes available as soon as there is the slightest glimpse within ourselves of our Creator, an inkling that there might be more for us than a life of limitation, quiet desperation, or outright suffering. During this series, I've said over and over that what is necessary is a shift in perception, that our perception be healed so that we can see truly, so that we can realize that struggling through life is optional and that we have other choices that would feel good if we would allow ourselves to believe we deserve to feel good and to live a life of grace and ease. This is part of healing a deep unworthiness that most human beings hold deep down inside and that keeps us believing in separation as the truth rather than in oneness. And so this is a shift in perception. It's putting on the glasses to see things differently. So what we're going to talk about today is our oneness with all of creation, how to see that and how we, we seek it, but we fear it simultaneously and how to heal that. But first, let's summarize the four previous shifts that we've talked about during this series. The first one was radical responsibility. We talked about how essential it is to accept that we create our reality from the inside out through how we think and feel. It's disempowering to us to believe that life is happening to us because it simply isn't true. And because in that victim stance, what we think and how we feel is constantly tied to external circumstances. And when that's the case, we are not free. Once we take radical responsibility for everything we think and feel without blaming ourselves, but with the understanding that the thinking and feeling is part of our programming and not who we are truly, 
we can begin to shift what we experience in the mirror of reality. And this is how we move from victim consciousness to co-creator consciousness and begin to access our creative power. Then we talked about the second shift, letting go of self-improvement, which is letting go of the unexamined assumption that there's something inherently sinful or wrong with us and that we need to become someone else to be deserving of the good we desire. The shift in perception here is to realize that you are already complete and have everything simply by virtue of being born human, that you are already forgiven and deemed worthy and need do nothing but let go of your illusions that you are unworthy of living with grace and ease. Making this shift is the antidote to chasing after success and fulfillment out there where it can't be found, and it connects you to your inherent purity, perfection, and deservingness as a child of God. This is your permanent state, and it is yours by divine grace. The inner knowing and experience of being born anew and realizing that no matter what you've been through, no matter what's happened to you, no matter what you've participated in, no matter how broken or stained or exhausted you feel by life, there is an eternal spring within you. And the gift of grace is that when you tap into that innate power in you and know that at your core, your pure essence is incorruptible and perfect, and you can experience that beauty and that radiance, that splendor of your very own being in the here and now, and that self cannot be improved upon. The third shift was to surrender all resistance to how the present moment is showing up for you. This includes whatever comes up for you emotionally and learning to process your emotional energy rather than suppressing it or avoiding it or expressing it in harmful ways. It's about accepting that the content of our lives is the curriculum for our evolution, as my mentor Mary Morrissey says. And thus, nothing can be wrong in your circumstances, whatever they may be at this moment or whatever you went through in the past. It was exactly what was required to move you into your destiny stream, whether you accepted the invitation or declined it. Finally, we talked about the necessity of establishing sacred space for yourself in both the physical and spiritual sense. Now more than ever, when we're living in a real-life video game of mayhem and madness, it's important that we transfer our reliance on external points of reference to internal ones. Because the truth about anything you really need to know cannot be found out there in the world. Remember that the world is just a mirror that reflects the collective consciousness the greater part of which is still insane because it hasn't yet realized it's living in a game. Remember that most people are still totally identified with their characters and think that that's who they are. They haven't yet awakened to their true nature. Now, this is a time of acceleration in the evolution of consciousness. It is a time of awakening and more and more people are waking up. But we are experiencing the labor pains of a new consciousness being born. So it's really important if you wish to contribute to peace on the planet, 
rather than chaos, to ground yourself in some kind of daily centering practice and to intentionally establish your own sacred space to acknowledge and continually remind yourself of your own holiness. We are so much more than what we've known up until now. And sacred space is the exteriorization of the inner altar where eternity meets time and space in us and as us. I go into greater detail in the previous episodes of this series about each of these shifts, so be sure to listen to those if you haven't already so you gain a deeper understanding of each of them. They need to become more than just ideas you can agree with to have true transformative power for you. All ideas are just playthings of the intellect until they become embodied. To become embodied, they must become habits. And to become habits, they need to be implemented consistently. So how exactly do we implement these shifts consistently? Well, I'm glad you asked because that's actually our fifth shift. All the previous shifts we've discovered in this series become possible if and only if you implement the fifth shift along with them. It's the glue that holds it all together. The last shift is to embrace community and mentorship. The paradigm of the Aquarian age values cooperation, collaboration, and co-creation. We're being asked to move from me consciousness to we consciousness. Now, it's easy to understand why we would resist coming together in community, because it can be so messy. (laughs) And we've certainly had our share of messy and downright destructive experiments in community when it's been imposed as an ideology, for example, with communism. True community is not created by erasing or ignoring differences in the name of so-called equality. Rather, it's the honoring of individual strengths and talents as contributing to the good of the whole and the recognition of the perfection of each individual as a unique expression of divinity and therefore holy. If you've ever been inside a group of people where egos are warring for dominance, you know it's impossible to get things done. It's exhausting and it can be just plain toxic. Communities are made up of individuals and to the degree that individuals lack awareness of their true nature, collectives will reflect that and be more or less harmonious, usually less. So as I said, there's a reason we resist coming together in groups, in collectives and communities, even as we're irresistibly drawn to them because the truth is we are all one and deep down inside we have a memory of that as being the truth. But there's a part of us that fears that if we let our guard down and come together in community, we could be exposed, it could be unpleasant, it'll be just like all those other times where it devolved into infighting, bickering, factions, partisanship, and jockeying for power in some form or other. As long as the ego holds sway, this is how it is. 
But as we evolve and produce more enlightened leadership, healthy collectives and communities will become the backbone of a more decentralized society. It's already starting to happen. And this has been another benefit of the global pandemic with many people leaving big cities and working from home in more remote locations. Things are becoming decentralized. Now, I talk a lot about intentionality because the intention we put into anything, consciously or unconsciously, determines its expression. This applies as much to community as to anything else. And you may have heard the term intentional community. That's a community that has been formed consciously with a certain aim in mind. The highest form of community is spiritual community, where people come together in the name of the Holy Spirit of life to recognize and honor the light within one another. That is the intention of a spiritual community, whether it's a community that meets physically in person or whether it's a virtual community. Well, one thing we've learned in the last couple of years is that when we couldn't get together in person, we could still get together virtually. And the necessity of having to get together virtually taught us something important about our inherent connectedness with one another. We've discovered or rediscovered that we are connected energetically, that we don't have to be physically in the same space to affect and be affected by one another and to have meaningful experiences. We've rediscovered the invisible energetic dimension through which we are always in communication with one another, always affecting one another. The truth is that the vibration we offer always impacts not only ourselves, but the entire human collective. In fact, the entire universe. None of us live in isolation, even if we live alone. Every thought you think, every emotion you feel is known to the entire universe. There is no such thing as privacy, however much we'd like to think that we can hide anything. Everything is known to the universe, which is aware of your subtlest vibration and your most secret thought. We are broadcasting stations, and we are never not broadcasting. Our part affects the whole, and the whole is affecting our part. We are already part of a human collective whose collective consciousness is right now determining timelines and outcomes for humanity. Even if you want to isolate yourself, you cannot escape your effect on the collective and the collective's effect on you on the energetic level. This leads us right back to our first shift about radical responsibility. We discover that each of us is responsible for the vibration we offer, which affects the whole, because we are one. Strong spiritual communities are an expanding light in the world and have the power to uplift not only their members, but also to raise the vibration of the collective consciousness. It's been shown in a variety of studies that when groups meditate for peace, for example, crime statistics are dramatically affected for the better. Spiritually aligned, intentional communities, whether they're large or small, whether they're location or non-location dependent, tend to form around transformational leaders, mentors, and teachers whose function is to hold the space for the transformation of others. 
So the best thing you can do for yourself if you're ready to make the shifts that will lead to an easier and more graceful, more harmonious, joyful, and prosperous experience of life is to receive the support of a mentor and an intentional community that shares your aim. Why? Because we were never meant to do this alone. In fact, we can't do it alone. When you want to change patterns that have kept you stuck in cycles of limitation, struggle, and suffering for as long as you can remember, help is required. Most people are hardwired to return to old patterns. There's a certain degree of unconscious resistance in all of us to the growth process. The pull of old habits is very strong, and there are simply things about ourselves that we cannot see. We can't see our own blind spots and self-sabotage mechanisms. An expert mentor shows you the mirror with compassion. So how do you choose a mentor? Well, an expert mentor has been down the road you're on and understands where you are. They know from experience what it takes to transform. A mentor should be demonstrating the results that you want for yourself and should have a spiritual angle that is greater than yours. In other words, they're able to see what is outside your current field of vision because their vision is of a wider angle than yours. But although they have a greater spiritual angle, they do not see themselves above you. All they see is the light in you, which you cannot see in yourself right now. A real mentor has no agenda. They're more interested in your growth and your freedom than in being liked or telling you what you want to hear. They want you to regain the sense of your own completeness and become greater than they are. They have no interest in keeping you dependent on them. If you have the grace to encounter a real mentor, do whatever it takes to be mentored by them. When I met my spiritual teacher years ago, I pulled out of a work contract and uh, behaved in ways that were uncharacteristic of me <laughs> to free up my time so that I could make trips back and forth to France just to be in his presence. Without understanding why, I just knew that being around him would advance my growth. I left everything that was familiar to me for the opportunity to absorb his teaching because I knew that what I could gain from his mentorship was more valuable than anything money could buy. It was the key to my own freedom that he offered me. Years later, I did the same thing to study with my coaching mentor. I threw caution to the wind and leapt into the unknown with no financial safety net because I recognized the value of the teachings far outweighed any perceived risk. At the time, I had no job and no money because I'd spent the previous several years spending the money I made teaching yoga to fund my trips to France to work with my spiritual teacher. For some time, I had been without any real income. And when I first began my studies to become a certified coach, I remember being in the bank and setting up a business account with like 500 bucks. I was in one of those offices where they take you to open an account with the bank officer. And I'll always remember this because it was a key moment for me. The bank officer was hearing impaired. So she was reading my lips and looking at me intently. So I felt like she was truly listening to me. 
And I remember telling her, I want to open a tax-free savings account. I didn't know where the money would come from to fund it every month, but I decided on an amount and committed to it. I was so nervous because I had just taken out a sizable loan to fund my coaching certification, So, and I wasn't practicing yet. And I found myself telling her, I don't have any work right now. I don't have much money, but I want to honor the money that I do have. And I believe that I will earn again and do well. And as I heard myself saying it, I got choked up. It felt so vulnerable to say that inside a bank. It made me realize how much shame there was there. And the woman had been looking at me the whole time. And she said, I think that's really courageous. It's good that you're doing this. Opening that account was an act of faith that the universe would support me as I stepped into my destiny stream. And I was not wrong in trusting the universe. (laughs) We never are. I was willing to take a leap of faith because I had already learned from experience that being in a structure of support with my teacher and the spiritual community that had formed around him had led to exponential inner growth. I knew that it was only a matter of time before that inner growth began to be demonstrated in my reality on the outer physical level. I took big risks to offer myself the support I knew I would need going forward because I trusted that mentorship with my chosen teachers and being in the energy field of their communities would raise my vibration by resonance and that I would benefit from that. No real change is possible on the material level of life without an internal change. And so that's why I have always invested heavily in the mentorship I have needed to heal my perception. And I continue to do so to this day. I know firsthand the power that mentorship and spiritually aligned communities have to transform. And I keep myself always within a structure of support. I recommend that you do the same if you're serious about wanting to change your results. If you're intrigued by this conversation and would like to go deeper and work with me personally, please check out the links in the episode info. And if you're interested in what an aligned spiritual community could offer you, check out the link to Grace Circle Membership Community. That's our circle of mentorship, teaching, and fellowship. You can make the changes you want to make in your life. You can live a life of greater ease and grace. You just need some guidance and some structure. I believe in you. I look forward to seeing you soon. Meanwhile, walk in grace. Thank you for joining me in the grace space where you're always in the right place. If you love this podcast, I invite you to subscribe to it and submit a review if you feel called to do so. Also, be sure to sign up for my newsletter right here. I look forward to spending this time with you again next week. Meanwhile, I send you love and blessings. Bye for now.